Amazon's got everything you need for your dorm. From everyday essentials and school supplies, to clothes and decor, to bedding for... Power naps. And regular naps, too. Save on all things college at Amazon. Bundling home and car insurance with GEICO is so easy, your neighbors are probably already doing it. But who... They may drop little hints like... Beautiful day out. Even more beautiful since we saved by bundling our home and car insurance with GEICO. Or... Yard work is hard. Much harder than bundling with GEICO, which was easy. Or it may be even subtler, like... Speaking of burgers, we bundled our home and car insurance with GEICO and saved a bunch of money. Bundling is easy with GEICO. Just ask your neighbors. Welcome to another episode of This Week in History, and a very different introduction to what you're probably used to, and I think it's quite a fitting one. Uh, this is a bit of a, a tragic, I, w- I would I would go as far as saying this is a love story, a tragic love story, um, a legendary story, and one that uh, your favourite guest has been will it, well wanting to do for a long time. Um, and I've had a, a lot of requests, Dad, to have you back on the show. That's, so, not, that's nice. I like yeah, that. So we, uh, we've we got you back. Um, I mean, we, we're working on quite a few now, aren't we, that uh, that will be going out soon. So this this week, we're going to be covering the uh, American uh, railroad legend. Folk hero. Folk hero, yes. Uh, <laughs> Casey Jones. And yes, we are. Uh, How much do you actually know about Mr. Jones? Um, To be honest, since the the Johnny Cash song, I I know a little bit. um, And from what I've researched, a Johnny Cash song's pretty pretty apt for for what's going on. Far off, yeah. Yeah, Um, I know a a few of the the little tales, but not uh, not a vast amount. Not a vast amount. Yeah, well, there we go. So, like always, when I start doing these things with you, I have to put everything into context. So there'll be a little bit of background, yes, and then there'll be the story, and then we'll, you know, whatever. Yeah? yeah, definitely. No problem. You all right? I'm you're ready. Listen- you're ready to go with I'm this one, to- aren't you? Oh, you're yeah. ready to listen, aren't you? Yeah, well, we- you've just shown me uh, a few of the little tricks for this one that are a little bit different so yeah i'm actually <laughs> right at right the start yeah we, we had a choice between a couple of episodes and this one i was just like it, yeah i'm really excited so yeah, okay. i'm quite looking forward to this one good okay right the history of the american railroad system and we would call it trains and you know, railways but the history of the american railroad system it's filled with accidents a vast number of them in the early years were fatal and in fact they were so commonplace they never really made anything and in the newspapers and if they did they were on the inside even if lots of people were killed in the accident so they weren't 
like it wasn't. If we had a railway accident now. It would be front page news. And, yeah. yeah. In, in those days, it wasn't. Um, we're talking sort of after the Civil War, uh, before the First World War. So that period, sort of fifty odd years. Yeah. So it's it's quite a a, a sort of a, a big big thing. And believe it or not, it was um, a very very lucrative uh, job to have anyway this is the story of a man who many people will have heard of but few will actually realize he was a real person um, and even fewer know anything about him yeah like i said i mean i i've heard of the song which i'm uh, i'm assuming um a lot of our listeners will probably have heard of of the johnny cash song or even heard of the name but how mm-hmm. much do you really know oh uh, yeah well i'm going to give you a little bit of information and i'm going to rectify this for all your listeners awesome okay i mean casey jones was nothing special we get that straight out of the way he was an ordinary man he lived a normal life and he died in an accident Uh, but millions of other people over the years have died in accidents Um, in reality if he hadn't had a song written about him he'd have probably disappeared into the mists of time Uh, but he did have a song written about him and it was uh written several years after his demise but uh well it was the ballad of casey jones and um, he the song is far better known than the man himself and if obviously if you're of a certain age you'll remember uh alan hale as casey jones in the television series i saw a clip of that in a, like a black and white uh tv show Yep, that's yeah. it. Yeah, Casey Jones was um, a part of an American television series in the early 60s. Right. So there we go. So, who was he and what was he famous for? All right. Yeah. Um, Jonathan Luther Jones was an American born during the Civil War. He was born on the 14th of March, 1919. 19- <laughs> I do that every time. <laughs> 1863 in southeastern Missouri. And he was born to Frank Jones and Ann Jones. Now, unfortunately, the records in the U.S. at this time, a little bit sketchy due to the Civil War. So um, there's not much about his birth. Okay, some records have him born a year later in 1864, but he was actually born 14th of March, 63. Okay. Okay, so she's just on 100 years before me. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But it there could we have are. been you 100 years ago, Dad. Oh, uh, yeah. Okay, so when he was born, uh, America was in the middle of the Civil War. And uh, Missouri was one of the border states, and it was really hotly contested by both the Union and the Confederacy. Yes, it was. Um, There were about 12,000 separate engagements in that state alone during the war. So only Virginia and Tennessee had more. Yeah, that was on on the uh, the, the Mason-Dixon line, wasn't it? Yeah, it was was the the border. So... um, it was probably for that reason that uh, soon after John was born that the family moved to uh, Casey. C-A-Y-C-E. Okay? Yep. And that's in Kentucky. Okay. And, well, where they moved to was only a short distance for some ra- from some railway tracks. So it sort of fueled John's fascination with trains and he'd often sit and watch and talk to the railwaymen while they worked on the tracks because yeah. they were just down the road from where he lived. 
Yeah, and that makes sense for a child to to grow up seeing something and wanting yeah. to. Um, it was a time in U.S. history when railroads were beginning to cover the whole of the country. Uh, they'd given the population means to get almost anywhere at speed, uh, which only a few years prior would have been unthinkable. Yeah, it was yeah. new and exciting yeah. as well. Um, steam engines of the time were the biggest and most sophisticated pieces of machinery, and you know the train drivers were the astronauts of their age. Yeah, they were famous. All right, the driver, or as we would call them, the driver, but I think Americans call them the engineer. They didn't only drive the train like they do now. They needed to know how the engine worked, how it was built all aspects of the whole train the tracks it ran on they'd become an expert in speed gradients corners bridges no one ever went straight into the engineer's role i mean it took years of learning and experience before anybody was promoted to the rank of engineer wow so uh, they were highly respected members uh, of the community and top of the tree were the passenger engineers yeah, so they're more than sort the of like passenger yeah. trains. Yeah. Okay. Well, I suppose that makes sense because obviously that's where people people are more involved rather than sort of like the postal service or freight trains. Well, that's right. Um, engines were categorised at the time by their wheel layout, so they were described by a sequence of three numbers. Basically, for example, a four six two engine would have four leading wheels, six drive wheels, and two trailing wheels. Okay. So that would be a 462. Um, bearing in mind, you, when you viewed it from the side, it would be a 231. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. So an engine with six drive wheels only would be an 060. Right, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So as a child, John would watch the trains on the rails not far from his home, and he dreamt of one day operating one of these massive engines that travelled the country. And like most 15-year-olds at the time, well, he moved out. Yeah. Which seems weird now. Yeah, you know. 15. But they did. They moved out. And, and John was the same. He moved out of the family home when he was 15, and he moved to Columbus in Kentucky. Okay. And it was there he started his journey in the railway industry. He managed to get a job on the Mobile, Ohio Railroad as a labourer. Okay. Um, so, basically... Dog's body. Yeah, yeah. general dog's body. Uh, but after a short time, he transferred into being a telegrapher. Now, that was another new industry that had come around, you know, telegraphs. And from all the reports that he'd had, and, and history says he was actually a very good telegrapher. Hmm. And it was about this time he changed his name to, from John to Casey. Uh, I suppose the rumour the rumor and history will will say that it's a rumor um he changed his name because when he was asked where he came from he said casey c-a-y-c-e and that's how he got his name casey but he actually spelt it c-a-s-e-y right yeah so i you see i thought it was like a nickname well, technically he didn't officially change it but he was casey jones yeah yeah so yes yeah Jones from Casey, I suppose. Hmm. Now, the the telegraph operator's job was to keep the trains on schedule. They notified the train crews of any problems or any unexpected trains that may be ahead of them by telegraphing the next station along the line. Yeah. 
Yeah, and then obviously he would, if there was an emergency message, somebody would flag the train down at his station, the message would be passed to the driver or the engineer, and they would carry on. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, They would also send warning messages to other depots up and down the line, and warning as such things as runaway trains or even Indians on the warpath, which in these times was still around, you know. Hmm, didn't know that was, yeah, I suppose you don't really think about it though, but... No, yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, unfortunately for Casey, being a telegrapher meant he worked for the railroad, but he was left behind when the trains went through the station. His post meant that he was sat in the station communicating with others further down the line, relaying to those crews when they stopped, but it wasn't where the action was. Hmm. Yeah. He, he basically hated the job and wanted to be at the controls of one of these so called iron horses. Well, yeah, it makes sense, doesn't it? You don't want to sit on the sideline. <laughs> no. Um, so with that in mind, he left the job as a, tele- a, a telegrapher. And he became a flagman. Right. Now, again, still at the bottom of the pile. Because before 1900, the flagmen were called freight conductors. It was a more dangerous job than you might think and did carry some serious risks. It wasn't the safest job on the planet. You know, the flagman was what they called a senior brakeman. And uh, he'd reached that rank because he'd worked his way up at being extremely competent and actually avoiding being killed. Yeah, it does make a difference. All right. (laughs) There's there's a, a, a reason for that. A brakeman was the person in charge of ensuring that all the carriages were connected. He was in charge of making sure they stayed connected. They were also uh, uh, responsible for applying the brakes on the individual cars. Now that meant climbing onto the roof of a moving train to Hence walk along the top. And yeah, moved, yeah. Uh, they were also uh, required to watch the train when it was underway to look for signs of hot boxes. Now, a hot box was an overheating axle bearing which basically meant they had to stand between the two carriages, lean out and look down the side of the train to see if there was any glowing from any of the wheels on the train. Okay. Not good. Oh, it doesn't sound Telegraph like poles. Trees. Trees. Bridges. Bridges. <laughs> like, it's Even not, birds. Or there's the, they're not, <laughs> it's not the safest job on the planet, yeah? They had to look for other damage to the rolling stock. Windows broken, something not, not quite right, as well as trying to stop people from riding the train for free. Yeah, they see you hear about that, like the the hobos jumping on trains. Yeah, that was happening, and cargo moving about and yeah. falling. They're not the most stable things, you know. They're not like the modern trains. No, they were also uh, the the the, uh, the flagmen were also. Uh, Responsible for setting flares, warning devices to warn other trains of dangers on the track. So it's a very, very dangerous job. And numerous reports of brakemen falling off trains, colliding with side structures, or actually being run over or crushed by their own train. Yeah. So, so to make it to be that sort of person and that job, you've managed to survive, which is why I said you could avoid being killed. Yeah. Wow. And by the time Casey had reached the role of flagman, he had a vast knowledge of trains rolling stock. And in order to 
do the flagman's job, he had to move again. So he moved off to Jackson, Tennessee. There's a song about that as well. What, Jackson? Mm. Yeah. Funny that, hey? Yeah, it's um, Johnny Cash one. It, funny, yeah. Johnny Cash did a lot of uh, songs about uh, people and places, didn't he? Yeah. yeah. Oh, it's one of my favourites. Yeah. I mean, um, Casey moved into a boarding house in Jackson and... Uh, he actually fell in love with the uh, the house manager's daughter, a lady called uh, Joanne Brady, also known as Janie. So, and he actually married her on the twenty fifth of November, eighteen eighty six. They eventually had three children, uh, two sons and a daughter. And and Casey was a good, a good, honest family man. When he wasn't working, he spent time at home. He was supporting his family. He was doing everything he could. But uh, Casey continued his rise up the ranks in the railway world and eventually he took up position of the number two in the engine. That's the fireman. Okay. So now he's in the cab. That's the guy that puts on the coal. Basically, yeah. 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 There were two types of firemen. One learning the trade, who was called a, uh, a switch engine fireman. And they worked in the yard, in the railway yard. And they never left it. So they were basically shunting engines from moving engines on tracks and all sorts. Yeah. Yeah. And the other was the road fireman who travelled on the freight or the passenger trains. And like you said earlier, the fireman's main job was to shovel coal into the firebox or the engine. And do you know how much how much these engines actually burn? I'm going to guess a fair amount. Yeah, between 40 and 200 pounds of coal per mile. Per mile? Per mile. Wow. Yeah, hence the fact that they had a massive great big coal carrier directly behind the uh, the actual engine itself. I mean... So it, I that, just check that it, in kilograms, it's it, 91 kilos. 91 kilos. Oh, you just checked that? Yeah. Yeah. 91 kilos, up to 91 kilos per mile. Obviously, it depended on the quality of the con- of the of the coal itself and how heavy your uh, engineer's foot was. Yeah. That's I've an seen. English expression. That means how... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, how much throttle they actually used. Yeah. If you, the faster <laughs> you go, the more you use. Mm-hmm. Now, the fireman also kept the cylinders on the drive wheels oiled while the train was moving. Yeah, And this, before 1888, could only be done by climbing out onto the side of the engine, going down the, bo- the, the running boards of the engine, creeping forward alongside the boiler, that great big cylinder thing on the front of the engine, yeah. and pouring tallow onto the valves. So, uh, that sounds just as dangerous as uh, as a brakeman's job. Yeah. Oh yes. So it's not the safest job on the planet. You know, you weren't just shoveling coal. Yeah. Um, eventually, a device in 1888 was invented that mixed oil with the water, and when it was turning into steam, and it it, it did it that it did it that way. Yeah. But until then, yeah, you had to do it manually by climbing along a moving engine. Oh, no, sod that. <laughs> yeah. Fireman's job paid $2.40 a day. Oh, so a lot of money then. There's quite a bit of money for that time, yeah. Now, Casey Jones excelled at this job. He was really, really good at it. But 1887, the area was hit with a yellow fever epidemic. Right, okay. And a lot of people in the railway industry came down with it. And 
This allowed Casey to achieve his dream. Yeah, so he's he's got a sort of like a an opportunity of a lifetime really to move up. Yeah. I mean during the summer of eighteen eighty seven the yellow fever epidemic struck the railroad i mean it was common during those times anyway in the hot uh, mississippi valley but uh, the individuals who worked for the railroad carried the mosquito illness with them contributing to its spread railroad workers who contracted uh, con- contracted the disease became very ill and a lot of them died and while they were recovering from it they just couldn't work yeah so it opened the door for people who were almost there to actually get promoted and casey jones was one of these so on the 1st of march 1888 he was promoted to engineer he became a train driver quite young as well yeah he wasn't that old he became an engineer on the illinois central railroad but only on freight trains Right, so he wasn't at the pinnacle of what he wanted to do. (laughs) No, certainly not. But he was an engineer. And he he used to run trains between Jackson, Tennessee and Water Valley, Mississippi. But as as an engineer, they were allowed to paint the engine whatever color they wanted. Most of them left them the original colors, which was usually black or a dark red. But they could paint their train their colour. Okay. They would, you know, it was that was you were allocated that train. That's the one you drive. There you go. Yeah. Um, they could also alter the whistle. Right. And it was, it wasn't done too badly. It was fairly easy to do. You'd put different size wooden wedges into the whistle to actually make a distinctive sound. Yeah, makes sense. Now, bearing in mind, these train drivers were like the astronauts of their time. If you were a train driver and you knew a train driver, you knew somebody famous. Yeah. Because they travelled the country. Ah, fair enough. And altering the whistle had the added advantage of letting people who lived alongside the track, they, they let them know who was actually driving the train that was passing through the stations. It also let the driver's family know that they were approaching the train and they'd be home. Or they could meet him on the track and it would give them the, the heads up that he was coming home soon. That's quite cool. Yeah. It's like your um, own little football chant. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Casey Jones actually modified the whistle on any engine that he was driving and he created a distinctive sound. Yeah. It's a one-off sound. His whistle was so distinctive that, that people knew when Casey Jones was driving through their, their particular town. He was that punctual with his driving and his schedule that they actually set the clocks by him. Wow. I was going to say, they had to be really, really accurate with their timing, didn't they? Mm. You want to know something? Yeah. I've actually got a recording of Casey Jones's distinctive whistle. God, wicked. Can we hear it? You certainly can. I bet that made you jump. Well, it was one of those sounds that if you actually knew it, then uh, you'd know it was Casey Jones. That is an actual recording of the sound of Casey Jones's whistle. It's got that vibration through it. Yeah, it sounds quite throaty. Do you yeah, know what I mean, rather than the, it's not like a whistle. It's a yeah, 
So, so everybody knew when Casey was coming through, which, to be honest, made a difference. You know, hmm. if you're famous, you want to allow. You know, it's, it's like the Facebook of modern time of sort of like modern Facebook, isn't it? Yes. Well, you know, yeah, you, everybody knows you're there. Yeah. You know, but there we go. I mean, <clears throat> but Casey still wasn't satisfied. No. <laughs> well, he's doing. You know, he wanted to be the best and drive passenger trains. And uh, as that was the highest paid job and the most prestigious, um, he knew that he needed to become noticed. And the best way to do this was to ensure that all of his journeys were on time, which is, like I said earlier, people who lived by the railway tracks knew Casey was coming through. They knew he was going to be on time. They could set their clocks by him. Yeah. So that's a way of getting noticed. Yeah. And, of course, the the, the railroad companies prided themselves on uh, efficiency, you know, and timekeeping, and the best engineers all knew this. Um, even if it meant breaking the rules by speeding a little, yeah, you know, that, that's what they did. I mean, the, the, the railway contracts for the companies were very, very strict. And the, the companies could be heavily, heavily fined if the mail, the goods, or the passengers were late. So I'd love uh, to see that work, this, especially <laughs> with my job. Why were you speeding? I'm sorry, officer. I've just got to get this fish delivered on time or I get fined. That's yeah. all right. Well, the company used to get fined. Yeah. You know? um, I mean, by all accounts, Casey loved to go fast and sometimes he went a little bit too fast. I mean, his work record, uh, he had uh, several reprimands for speeding because although the company was fined for it, they didn't want you to do it. Yeah. officially yeah it's one yeah. of them double standards things that they uh, like yeah. to do I mean during um, Casey's career he received nine reprimands 145 days suspension from work for speeding that's nearly half a year yeah um, despite <laughs> it he was an excellent engineer and in 1900 the you know the year 1900 uh, he received no citations at all so he was good at what he did. Yeah. But there was a time, this, this was a time when passenger comfort wasn't any concern, and lawsuits from passengers just who sustained injuries because of the high speeds were non-existent. So a lot of the indiscretions, they just went unpunished, and as long as the train ran on time, nobody was worried. Yeah. The, Try the, it uh, now. <laughs> God, yeah. Yeah, I've, tri- with- I've, I've tripped over something in the train, and that's it. It's the, it's the railroad's fault. Okay, but anyway, 1893, Illinois Central Railroad was given a contract to operate trains for the Chicago World's Fair. Right. And Casey Jones was given his chance. He was given the chance to take passengers out of the fair in a passenger train. So what he wanted to do. So exactly what he wanted to do. It was there Casey became acquainted with the most technologically advanced freight engine on the market. That was on display at the fair. At the time, all engines had a number. Yes. Yeah, it was like a number plate. Yeah? And the number of this most modern engine that was actually on display was 638. Okay. So that's the number of the train. And it was a uh, a 280. Right. So, so we go back to the... What two wheels at the front, eight in the eight middle, in the middle none, none at the back. back. Yeah. yeah. So it's a 280 configuration, and it was the most powerful engine available at the time. So he was 
you know, this is I like this. This is right now. You became involved with it. So when the fair ended, uh, the Illinois Central Railroad needed it to be driven back to Jackson, which is a total distance of five hundred and eighty nine miles. Now, although he Casey was only a junior engineer, yeah. he requested to drive it. Well, it's back to his hometown, isn't it? So yeah. they granted that request. And number 638 took its first ever journey with Casey Jones at the controls. Oh, wicked. And he remained the driver of 638 right up until February 1900. So nearly two years. So that was like his That was his engine and his pride and joy. That's where the legend of Casey Jones begins. He's now in charge of the biggest, fastest, most powerful steam engine in america at the time yeah so not only is he famous because he's an engineer not only has he got the most distinctive whistle he's now driving the the biggest McLaren of the day yeah yeah although it's still only a freight engine someone's yeah. going to tell me off now for the same mclaren they're going to come up with a better car that's not british aren't they just to of course they are yeah <laughs> but there we are <laughs> so i mean he became extremely popular. He gained a reputation for always arriving on time. And with that distinctive whistle, everybody knew when Casey Jones was coming through. I mean, he's not without controversy. I mean, in 1895, so we're going back before. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Casey was in the cab with another engineer called Bob Stevenson. And as the, the train approached Michigan City, Casey left the cab to carry out moving maintenance on the engine. You know, crawl across the front of the engine to... Was that not hot? Yeah, of course it was. He's crawling along the front of the engine, alongside that massive boiler towards the front of the train, away from the cab. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's not exactly the the safest thing to do. It doesn't sound sensible. Um, And he had to carry out some moving maintenance on the engine. Bob slowed the train down in order to make it as safe as possible but you still got the time scales you know you still need to be there on time and that allowed casey to walk along the running ball which ran down the side of the boiler yeah he reaches the front does what he has to do and then casey notices a group of children playing on the track about 60 yards ahead they all saw the train and bolted except one it's just a little girl who stood in in the middle of the train tracks and this massive great big steam engine is coming towards them. Casey Jones is now standing on the front of it and he sees this girl. This girl's going to get run over. Yeah, she's petrified, can't move. Can't move. Yeah. He yells at Stevenson to to hit the brakes, screamed at the girl to get off the line. She just stood there. Yeah. Uh, Casey Jones climbed down onto the cow catcher which is the grated grill right at the front yeah the pointed triangle bit the that's pointed there triangle, to yeah. knock anything off knock the track. anything off the track yeah um right at the front of the train he balanced himself on it he leant out and just before the train hit the girl he scooped her up wow all while the train was still moving yeah and if I if I'm right, Disney did that as well. Disney did a thing, yeah, very similar, yeah. Where the, the engineer, it was a, a damsel in distress that was tied up on the thing, and 
the engineer climbed for yeah. us. Yes, but that's that's all because of it's Casey. because of Casey Jones. Yeah, yeah. you almost think we you know when you watch it and you go, oh wow, never you don't actually realise that's not that is actually a real story. Obviously, she real, wasn't yeah. tied to the tracks, but yeah, yeah so it's, a, it's real, a real story. A little girl survived. Casey took her back to the uh, to to the engine and wow. they dropped her off at the next station. So yeah, crazy, amazing, eh? Yeah. Well, that's another thing that cements him into. Once yeah. a story like that comes out, you you, know, you suddenly think uh, this, this geezer's a, you know he's either a little bit special or a little bit stupid or a bit of both <laughs> or both. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyway, that was that was five years before Casey took over the the big the big sort of uh, powerful engine. But I mean, that's one of the stories that Kate comes out over Casey Jones, and it's true. It's absolutely brilliant. Well, there we go. So we ju- we'll jump forwards again to February 1900. Okay. And Casey Jones, well, he leaves the train 638 behind. Yes, so he's lost his baby now. Yeah. Or his favourite. Because he gets the opportunity to drive, instead of from Jackson, Tennessee, to Memphis, Tennessee on the freight line, he gets to drive the passenger run between Memphis and Canton, Mississippi. Right, okay. Uh, this was one link in a four-train run between Chicago, Illinois, and New Orleans, Louisiana. And they called it the Cannonball Run, the Cannonball Passenger Run. I know a song about that as well. Cannonball Express. I was thinking of the Warbash Cannonball. The Warbash Cannonball. Which is Boxcar Willie, which yeah. also Johnny Cash covered as well. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it was called the Cannonball Passenger Run. Um, and cannonball was a term that was applied to fast mail trains and fast passenger trains in the day. It's a generic term for a, a oh. very fast service. So the Warbash cannonball is probably not about that. Well, it was, uh, it was a fast train that ran through Warbash. Oh, okay, fair <laughs> enough. <laughs> um, and not knowing America very well, I have no idea how close or how far away it yeah. actually someone is. T- someone told me where that is. So <laughs> f- let me know. I yeah. want to know where that is. Um, I mean... This particular run offered the fastest schedules in the history of the American Railroad. And some of the older engineers, they actually doubted that the times that the company put up could actually be met. And a few of them actually refused to drive on that line. Because they didn't think it was... Because they didn't think it was safe and it was too fast. Okay. Okay. So, uh, Casey transferred over and he went to train number two northbound okay okay so you have so so you have train one two northbound uh, one and two northbound three and four southbound okay yeah 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 so it left this uh, jones took up the number two okay so that would be okay so it's northbound and he needed to move his family to memphis okay but he, but he had to give up driving 638. Okay, but he's it's sort of a uh, bittersweet because he's got the he's got the, the job dream job that he wants, but not the dream train. So. Correct. So he transferred to engine number 384. Okay. 29th of April, 1900. Casey Jones and his regular fireman, so they had the they were the crew. Simeon Webb was the bloke's name. Yeah. Sim for short. Uh, it was a black gentleman. He was the fireman. They'd completed their run, 29th of April. They'd got back to Memphis Station around 9 o'clock in the evening. 
Okay. Uh, I know what that feels like, getting back late. Yeah. They were both due out on the return journey the following morning as normal. But the driver of the train number one, a bloke called Sam Tate, had called in sick. So the station or the station agent came up to Casey and said, would you make the return journey? 200 miles. Uh, which basically meant that he and Sim had to do a, do- a double shift. Without any sleep. Without any sleep. They were they couldn't use their own engine, so they had to use Sam's engine. Because he wasn't there, he'd phoned in sick, or he'd called in sick. I think they didn't phone in, did they? No. What they do is they'd send somebody down to the train station and say, I ain't coming in. Yeah. Sam's engine was 382. Okay. So... It had to. It had to go. The company would be fined if they didn't send an engine. Send the train. They had to find an engineer. Casey was that engineer. Casey agreed to do the run, so he and Sim actually did a double shift. Three eighty two had six cars filled with passengers. So it wasn't a very long train. No. All right. And Casey, he reckoned he could make up the lost time. Three eighty two was a powerful engine, it was fairly new, and the train was light. So he changed his whistle to 382. Well, I'm guessing the whistle was transferable then, it wasn't like attached. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, so, they just yeah. unclipped it, put it okay. on, because it's his whistle. Yeah, so he wants, uh, Okay, yeah. and they left Memphis 95 minutes late. That's a lot of time to An make Hour and three quarters, and they've got to make it up, and it's only 200 mile run. That's not really possible unless you're doubling okay. your speed. They left at 10 to 1 in the morning of the 30th of April, 1900. The weather, it wasn't great. It was a little bit foggy. There was rain on the way. Uh, but Casey reckoned he could make the time up. <laughs> How? Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, to meet the normal timetable, the train had to average 45 miles an hour. Okay. Okay. So Casey calculated that in order to actually get the train in on time, they had to average 60 miles an hour. Yeah, that makes sense. All right. And that's not accounting for curves, stopping for water, passing other trains. Now, passing other trains was something that they had to do because it was all a single track with little tiny what we'd call slip roads or slips sidings yeah and what would happen is the train would pull into the station the telegrapher would say there is a train coming towards you you need to pull into x y or z siding yeah wait for that train to go past when that train has gone past there are no more Mm. you can then carry on or you have priority there will be a train in the siding at so and so Right, yeah. Yeah, if it's not there, be aware that train will have pulled in earlier at the other siding. Yeah, that's the sort of thing, that's the information the telegraphers would send sending across, yeah? Yeah. So that that was the situation. Casey had a lot of catching up to do, and he still thought he could do it. So 382 leaves Memphis. Casey told Sim to be ready because it was an uphill and fairly fast for several miles. 
and then followed a few slow curves until they reached a place called Hernando Hill, which was 21 miles out. It's then a straight run down through the through uh, a place called Love Station, across cold water bottom, slow curve out of cold water, and then flat out for 16 miles. Yeah? Yep. Now, Casey probably had this on his mind at this point. A gentleman called Dave Dowling, who was an engineer, and his fireman, Jack Bennett. They had travelled the same way the previous November, and the train had left the rails at a place called South Crossing, killed both of them. Okay. All right, and that was the previous November. And like I said at the beginning, the headline at the time, mail train delayed by accident. Um, that particular article in the newspaper spent more time explaining that the mail and the passengers were delayed rather than about the two crew that had died. So they were expendable. Yeah. Yeah. The last sentence of that particular article said, both the engineer and fireman of the train were killed instantly in the overturning of the giant locomotive. No names were given. It just summed up the railroad's attitude to everything. Yeah. Timekeeping was more important than anything else. Wow. <laughs> yeah. That's so mental. You've got to think. Casey was probably thinking of that as well. I mean, you'd be stupid not to. It makes you wonder why they wanted to work for a company like that. Do you know what I mean? Because if they didn't work, they didn't eat. Well, yeah. That, yeah there's no, no I social. That. There's yeah, no... We're no, 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 no. so yeah. talking 1900. You know, it's not... Uh, yeah, there's no... There, there's, there's very, very little. And, of course, no they were getting paid a lot of money to drive these trains. Mm. You know, that was they, they, they were the astronauts of their age. Yeah. yeah. There was no uh, workers' unions either. Or no. <laughs> um, I mean, Casey... Basically, he put his foot down, and he'd made up a considerable amount of time. Uh, and by the halfway point, when he stopped for water, which was at a place called Penstock in Grenada, uh, Grenada, 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 one of them, <laughs> one of them. Um, he was only about forty minutes late. So he'd made up more than half the time. Oh, easily. The light train made a difference. He was constant. He was confident he could make up the remainder. And Casey had the cannonball running at between 80 and 100 mile an hour in some places. Wow. Yeah, yeah that's, something that size, that's not slow. It's not slow, is it? He was going some. So, by the time Casey reached Goodman, he was only five minutes late. Wow. Okay, so he's picked up a lot of time. He stopped there, where, and he was instructed to wait for the northbound train to pass in the opposite direction. Okay, so he's told he's been told go down the line, take the first siding, sit and wait until that that neck, that, that that train has come through. Mm -hmm. That was the number one train, the northbound. Yeah, um, it was actually driven by a, a gentleman called George Barnett, and um, he waited. You know, Casey's pulled into the siding. George Barnett actually spoke to his fireman about it. And as he went past, and uh, he said, that, that Jones boy is showing off again. He knows they don't pay a dime more for a fast run than they do a good one. Yeah. That's what he said to his fireman as he passed Casey Jones on the siding. Because Casey Jones should not have been there. He was 95 minutes late, and the train, the northbound train, the number one train, knew it. Yeah. But he was on time almost. Yeah. So, so he was showing off. Yeah, yeah. basically he was. You know. 
Casey knew that there should be trains further up the track. So once that number one train had gone through, he knew that there were other trains on the track. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, But he was driving the passenger train, so he had priority and he now had right of way. There were no more passenger trains coming up that line. Okay. So he knew, I'm in the number two, I'm in the cannonball, I'm going through. There's no reason for me to stop. All the other trains that are on the track now should Should pull into the siding to allow me to go through. Yeah? Yeah. Okay. So, in reality, Casey had a totally clear run to his destination. He arrived at a place called Pickens. He was almost on time. There were no trains at Pickens on the passing section, so he assumed that if there were any, they would be waiting at a place called Vaughan which was six miles ahead. So that's where there's a, the, the lay-by with a, a, a thicker yeah, like pass. Yeah. Passing site. Sorry. But unknown to Jones, there were two trains waiting in Vaughan. Uh, number 72, number 83. Uh, the two trains had pulled in to allow the fast passenger train to go through. Yeah. But there was a problem with the front train. It was train 72, and an air hose had broken on one of the front cars, and that caused the brakes to be locked on. Right, yeah, and you ain't moving that. Yeah, which meant the last four carriages of train 83 were on the main line. But they shouldn't. Well, well, I suppose they should have been if they were backing out, but the whole of the train should have been and then going. Yeah. So 83 was still on the main line. Four carriages. It's a single track section, so the line was blocked. Casey has gone through Pickens. That's the last point at which he can be contacted. He is now flat out getting his train in on time, and you've got a train with four carriages on the main line. And no one can tell him. No one can tell him. The flagman from number 83, a bloke called John Newbury had carried out the safety measures that he had to do. So under these circumstances, and it did allow for circumstances like this, the procedure was that the flagman had to place flares on the track. He had to walk down the track no less than 10 telegraph poles, which is around 3,000 feet. Okay, so it's a long way. Yeah. He had to place torpedoes on the track to warn oncoming trains that there was an emergency ahead and they would have to stop. A torpedo is a little explosive that sits on the track. And as the train goes over it, it explodes, it warns the driver. They still use them today. Okay. That's cool. Yeah, to warn drivers and warn pedestrians who are working on the track that there's a train coming. Yeah? Yeah. Um, They make a loud bang when driven over. and, And that's it. Now, Newbury... Uh, walked further down the line. So he did more than what he was supposed to do. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He walked further down the line from the stationary train, and there he had to wave a flare and a flag and stay out until he was recalled by the engineer of the train that was causing the problem. Okay. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, that was his... So Newbury was the first indication that anything was going to be wrong. Okay. Mm-hmm. Casey and Sims were heading towards a place called Vaughan and only about two minutes behind schedule. 
Casey had made up all the time. Casey was in the driver's position on the right-hand side of the cab with Sims on the left. Between them is the massive boiler. Yeah, so you can't... Yeah, yeah, that's why. Yeah. Can't see. Coming into Vaughan, there's a sweeping right-hand bend followed by one to the left. Right, so... So it's an S Casey bend. can't see anything as it goes round to the right. All he can see... The, the uh, He's on the inside... Yeah. His view is on the inside of the curve as it goes round the right. Yeah. And he's on the outside as view of the curve as it goes round the left. Yes. So as yeah. it comes round into As it Vaughan. goes yeah, so he can see anything that's on the track on the inside of the curve, but then as the curve disappears round to the to the left, he's on the outside he can't see. Alright? Yeah. See that's quite a scary thought when you're driving a Massive engine. Ton engine at 100 miles an hour. Do you know yeah. what I mean? Now, 382 enters the first of the two bends. Casey's view was that of the inside of the bend. He can't see to the start of the left bend and because his view is obstructed by the engine and the boiler. The train is travelling around 75 miles an hour. The bend straightens out. That gives Sims a view down the line. Because he is now on the inside looking down the left-hand side of the train. Immediately, Sims sees the red lights at the rear of train 83. Judging by that sound that we heard, that's, uh, you know, what happened. Yeah. The lights are attached to a caboose. Now, that is usually the last carriage on a train in those days, which was designed for the crew to to use. It was there, like, canteen. It was there. Staff room. Staffing room. It was basically a staff room. Yeah. Sims shouts across to Casey, Oh, my Lord, there's something on the main line. Casey climbs up, looks down Simeon's side of the boiler. There's a loud rush of air. Casey slams on the emergency brakes, shut the throttle, put the engine into reverse, reopen the throttle, dump the sandboxes. The sandboxes are in front of the wheels. They hit the, the sand hits the track. It gives the train more grip. Okay. Yeah, so that's what they are. I mean, that's, that's a, it's an amazing. He, like, he hits the brakes... On the emergency stop, he closes the throttle, which is not an easy thing to do. He slams the engine into reverse, reopens the throttle, and dumps the sandboxes almost all in one movement. He pulls the pulls the cord for the whistle. Yeah. At the same time, he shouts for Sims to jump. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was normal procedure for train crews in the time in that time before black boxes. It helped the investigators uh, establish the cause of any accident because they would the the engineer or and or the fireman would usually survive. <laughs> but the the engineer not. He's travelling at seventy five miles an hour. Yeah, I wouldn't want to jump out of a moving. Yeah, hey, all right. He's hit the brakes and he's slung the thing into reverse. It's a big train. 
is there's a lot of weight you know it's that's it sims climbs out onto the side of the engine it lowers himself down as far as he can to the ground and jumps his last memory was the that of the whistle screaming to warn those ahead sims lands heavily gets knocked unconscious he is 300 feet from the impact he regains consciousness about 30 minutes later and his first recollection was hearing the voices say, here he is. Wow. So you can imagine the situation. It's ten to four in the morning. It's dark. It's pouring with rain. There's no light. Casey has done absolutely everything there is possible to do. He knows it isn't enough. He's alone in the cab. Simeon has gone. We know Simeon survives, so it's highly likely that if Casey had jumped, he would have as well. He knew he was heading for the caboose on the train ahead. He didn't know if any of the crew were sleeping in the carriage. What do you think you'd have done? I'd have jumped. <laughs> I'm a dick. I'd have put myself first. Yeah. You've everyone. got you've got passengers on your train. Not my problem. I, honestly, that my mm. attitude would I would save myself. I got wife and kids at home. I would have I'd have jumped. I wouldn't care about anybody else in that situation. Mm. But yeah. anybody who did is you couldn't is, have been criticised for it because you'd have survived. You'd have turned around and you well you might not have survived the jump. No, but that's you true. you could have survived it. And if you did, you would be able to tell people what happened. Yeah, yeah. No black boxes. No, but you're more of a hero if you stay in. Casey didn't. He no. stayed in the cab. He kept the brakes on full and the whistle blowing. The whole time. The whole time. Simeon Webb was interviewed several years after the incident. Do, yeah. you, know, do you know what he said? Uh, I, I, th- I have seen a, a, a clip of it, but I didn't really pay that much attention. Okay. Why, what have you got for us? I will tell you what he said. Fifteen miles south of Goodman is the little town of Vaughan, approached by an S-curve, which swings first to the right, then back to the left. Naturally, on this type of curve, the engineer and fireman of the steam locomotive cannot see the track ahead at the same time. As we entered the curve, I climbed up and looked out of the cab window on my side, so that when we swung to the left, I could look ahead with a clear view of the siding and station. As we came out of the curve, there right ahead of us were the red rear markers of a train. Showing red meant that it was on the main line. At once I yelled to Casey, Oh my Lord, here's something on the main line. He jumped to his feet, looked diagonally across the top of the boiler, at the same time setting the air brakes in emergency stop. Jump, Sim, jump, he shouted. I jumped across the deck, grabbed the handrail, slid down as far as I could go, then turned loose. Casey never had a chance. Like he said, Casey never had a chance. No, well, it doesn't sound like he did. Well, I mean, he did have a chance, but he did what you know what was right at the time, and like I said, something I wouldn't have done. <laughs> I would have jumped. Well, 
Simeon Webb, he died in Memphis in 1957, aged 83. So he, but that that's something that would have stayed with him for... Oh, of course it did. Yeah, must have done. It's estimated Casey Jones succeeded in slowing the train down to about 30 to 35 miles an hour before ploughing into the wooden caboose at the rear of train 83. Smashed that put to pieces. The engine continued on through a freight car containing corn, one containing hay, and another filled with lumber. 382 left the tracks to the left, hit the embankment, spun round, and ended up facing in the direction it had come from. Railway men from train 83 and 72 ran to the wreck. Immediately after the collision, the air is filled with escaping steam and silence that's all you can hear the scene was one of devastation there were coals from 382 and they'd come out of the engine they'd set fire to the bale of hay that was carried in one of the carriages of the train that they'd hit uh the fires were extinguished by the railway men and they found casey still in the cab um the back of his head had been crushed by tangled wreckage and he was also completely scalded by the escaping steam from the from the boiler but although the his head injuries were were serious everybody there agreed he was dead before that happened a piece of wood from the lumber car gone straight through his throat wow uh, contemporary accounts said that his hands were still on the brakes and the whistle cord so he made a point of stopping it till the last second. Well, he never released the brakes. Yeah. Brakes were still on. He was the only casualty. His watch stopped at the exact time of the accident, eight minutes to four a.m. Wow. If Casey had not remained at the controls, then there would certainly have been some passenger deaths. And his actions that night made him a national hero. Well, yeah, you can understand why when you think when you look at it like that. Casey was buried in uh, Mount Calvary's cemetery next to the church he'd been married at fourteen years previously. The next day, a hundred and twenty years on, Vaughan as a town no longer exists. The tracks have long gone. The route has been taken over by nature. Even the imprint of three eighty two, which remained on the embankment for decades, that's gone. Engine 382 was removed from the scene, repaired and returned to service. Turned out to be a little bit of a cursed engine. It was involved in several accidents. Three years after the Casey Jones one, um, criminals caused the engine to crash, resulting in the engineer that had replaced Casey Jones losing both his legs. That bloke's name was Harry Norton. Um, And he was badly scalded at the time. His fireman died three years later of the injuries sustained in that accident. In September 1905, Norton again was driving 382 and it flipped over in the Memphis South Yards. The train was moving slowly. Norton was uninjured. Seven years later in 1912, 382, which had been renamed, and it had been renamed, here we go, 22012, (laughs) was involved in another accident that killed four four railway men and injured several others engine was eventually retired from service and was scrapped in July of 1935 
Uh, but on the way to the breaker's yard, it jumped the rails and killed another person. Bloody hell. 382 was 37 years old when it was scrapped. It's the same age as Casey Jones when he died. Wow, that's quite a cool little fact. The railway's formal investigation concluded that Engineer Jones was solely responsible for the accident as a consequence of not having properly responded to flag signals. The emergency brake application was not enough, but it slowed the train enough so that no passenger or other crew member was seriously injured. So they blamed him. Well, yeah, you find that throughout history, though, that you blame someone who can't defend now, himself. I, I know I've played a little bit of uh, Simeon Webb's interview. Yes. But earlier on in the interview and throughout his life, Simeon said that Newbury was not at his post, did not have a flag, and there were no torpedoes on the track. Wow. Hmm. The Board of Inquiry disagreed with him. Oh dear. It does it does seem to reason though that if that if those procedures had been followed and considering you know the the fact that Casey was possibly one of the best drivers of his in, time in in the world at that time that he would have responded to signals that would have saved lives mm-hmm. oh so yeah it does seem possible like it is possible that you know sims right there saying you yeah. know that there was so, no that is the story of casey jones it would have ended nobody would have known about it there were very very similar stories throughout history of the american railroad system yeah Except Casey had a song written about him. It was written by a friend of Casey's, a bloke called Wallace Saunders, and he used to sing it in the railway yard to the tune that we all know. It was picked up by the railway men who drove the engines and spread all over the country. It was picked up again in the the sort of country era by Johnny Cash. Yeah. And just a little bit extra for you, Casey Jones' wife... Janie. Yes. She lived to the age of 92. She died on the 21st of November 1958 in Jackson, Tennessee, and it is said that she mainly dressed in black after her husband's death, but she never paid for another train journey. She just merely handed the conductor a note saying, I am the widow of Casey Jones, and I would like to ride your train. That's awesome. Now you know a little bit more about a real American folk hero. Yeah, that's a brilliant story. I love that. Uh, and I think because we are a history podcast and we are educating, we have the right to play this song. I believe you so. Yeah, I think, we, I think we've got to. So for those of you who haven't ever heard this song, this is one of my favourite Johnny Cash songs and it's the Ballad of Casey Jones. All you rounders, if you want to hear the story about a brave engineer, Casey Jones was a roller's name on a six-eight wheeler. Boys, he rode to fame. Caller called Casey about a half past four. He kissed his wife at the station door. He climbed in the cabin with his orders in his hand. Said, "This is the trip to the promised land." Casey Jones climbed in the cabin. Casey Jones orders in his hand. Casey Jones. Leaning out the window, 
Taking a trip to the promised land Through South Memphis, yards on a fly Rain been a-fallin' and the water was high Everybody knew by the engine's moan That the man at the throttle was Casey Jones Well, Jones said, Fireman, don't you fret Sam Webb said, I ain't a-givin' up yet We're eight hours late with the southbound mail Be on time or we're leaving the rails Casey Jones climbed in the cabin Casey Jones, orders in his hand Casey Jones, leaning out the window Taking a trip to the promised land Dead on the rail was a passenger train Blood was a-ballin' in Casey's brain Casey said, hey, look out ahead, Sam Jump, Sam Jump, I'll be dead Well, a hand on a whistle and a hand on a brake North Mississippi was wide awake I see railroad officials said He's a good engineer to be a laying dead Casey Jones climbed in the cabin Casey Jones orders in his hand Casey Jones leaning out the window Taking a trip to the promised land Headaches and heartaches and all kind of pain Are all a part of the railroad train Sweat and tall, the good and the grand Are part of the life of a railroad man Casey Jones climbed in the cabin Casey Jones, orders in his hand Casey Jones, leaning out the window Taking a trip to the promised land Bundling car and renter's insurance with GEICO is so easy, your neighbors are probably already doing it. But who? Look for the signs. Chances are they live in a home and have a car. They use money and enjoy having more of it. They probably drink lots of lemonade. Mmm, lemonade. And they've probably said something suspicious like, I'm bundling with GEICO or stop spying on me with those binoculars. If so, you may want to ask them how easy it was to bundle with GEICO. Bundling is easy with GEICO. Just ask your neighbors. Finding the right person for the job isn't easy. Just ask someone who hired a drama coach to be an IT guy. Yeah, I'm having trouble logging in. I'm not buying it. Say it again. This time with feeling. I can't log in? Come on, man. I want to feel your struggle. But if you've got an insurance question, you can always count on your local GEICO agent. They can bundle your policies, which could save you hundreds. Now, like your life depends on it. I can't log in. Yes, we'll make an actor out of you yet. For expert help with all your insurance needs, visit geico.com local today. 